There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Pakina Maimur and you're listening to Working Scientist, a Nature Careers podcast. Welcome to episode five of our six-part series about the ins and outs of science communication. Today, we'll put the spotlight on institutions and funding agencies that support science outreach through grants, fellowships, fund challenges, and competitions. We will look at initiatives like the 3-Minute Thesis and the 25 Trailblazers, and we'll discuss resources available to scientists and doctoral fellows who want to increase knowledge of their discoveries and findings alongside the research job. Three of my guests today have ties with the UK research charity Wellcome Trust in some capacity or another. Welcome invests heavily in science, including in outreach activities and research related to communication and policy. Muslifa Hanifa calls her 2016 exhibition Inside Skin a free conversation between art, poetry and science. You see the invite flyer, you see what I mean exactly. It's like an image of like all the cells in your in the top layer of your skin. They're called Langerhans cells. And basically, you know, the poet would sort of look at it and say, if you were counting, Jane would be made of 100 trillion cells, an impossible number of O's. Examine a smudge of her under a microscope and it's like looking at the stars. So that's the interpretation of that image. Whereas for me, the scientific interpretation of that image was there are 800 Langerhans cells per millimeter square skin. These cells interdigitate, holding hands in the skin, forming our first immune surveillance network. I've not kind of changed anything about the facts, but this is how I see the facts, but this is how a poet would see that same kind of research finding. So that was the what the aim was. Muslifa is a Malaysian dermatologist and immunologist, a scientist and clinician. She studies the fundamental units of life. She has spearheaded research that created the first ever cell map of the developing immune system in the liver, skin, and kidney. She discovered new immune cells in the skin. She's also one of the scientists behind the Human Cell Atlas, a global project that aims to create comprehensive reference maps of all human cells. The idea for the exhibit she speaks of was born during a public outreach meeting that the Wellcome Trust had organized while Muslifa herself was a senior research fellow at the organization. She met Linda Anderson, a professor of English and American literature at Newcastle University in the UK. They started a conversation about making research findings more palpable, giving form and substance to data, and giving the public science information that they could interact with and even touch. You know, Linda luckily didn't dismiss me as a nutcase and kind of like um, introduced me 
to all the kind of like her contacts and colleagues in the arts and humanities department. So all of a sudden, you know, I, I was now able to kind of interact and, and, and exchange ideas with, you know, sound engineers, digital artists, writers, photographers and poets. Uh, and this was really quite exciting because it meant that we could now discuss ways to actually, you know, actively go about and delivering something, you know, rather than just sort of thinking, oh, wouldn't it be nice? Uh, but not know, really knowing how to do. So I think the they kind of like, you know, making that initial contact and realising that there are people around who could um, facilitate this for, you know, clinician scientists or researchers like me who don't really have like a background in arts or create creative writing or whatever. In 2016, Muslifa worked with Linda alongside engineers and artists to produce Inside Skin, an interactive and photography exhibit based on her own research into human cells. It became part of a public engagement program sponsored by Welcome Itself and was later displayed at the Hancock Museum in Newcastle. So there were several pieces that we kind of like developed, uh, which was based on my research, you know, encompassing that multi-sensory, you know, transformations of it so that you could touch, see, hear, smell and taste. The specific pieces, for example, some of it was like uh, one of the um, sound engineer, Ben Freeth, he kind of like took the gene expression data and basically data sonification and illumination. So he kind of like based sound and, and visual LED display based on the gene expression of the cells that I was studying um, and called it cluster. So this was basically a kind of like a, a wooden booth that you felt that you kind of like entered and were enveloped in and then you could put headphones on and listen to the sound and you know see the visual display and this was to mimic because I'm my my science my research is mainly on immunology so this was to depict how it would feel if you could actually be engulfed or phagocytosed by a macrophage and then you know you're able to actually see the macrophages and listen to the to the them so it's like a way of you know experiencing a macrophage in a different way to how you would in kind of like um, scientific you know literature or or images uh, so that was you know one element of it and then there was also other pieces like um, a written piece uh, by Linda Franz called Tetrakai Decahedron and this was essentially uh, a take on the skin as a barrier organ, which is tetrachy decahedron. It's a polyhedron with 14 faces and the keratinocytes are supposed to have these faces. So she wrote it in the form of a sonnet, which is like a poem of 14 lines, like the faces of the polyhedron. Muslifa's fellowship enabled her to create this network. But I wanted to explore other ways, perhaps simpler ways in which scientists can bring attention to their work. So I had a chat with Carla Ross a public engagement research and evidence lead at Welcome. She told me all about an ongoing engagement project that's more global and that they are also sponsoring. It's called 25 Trailblazers. Carla, I gather that Welcome has selected 25 examples of public engagement in research in areas of science and health. It's open to UK and international researchers. And as I understand, you plan to publish and curate that work. How did the idea develop for that and what are you planning to achieve from it? The idea um, actually came from a shift in strategy that we had here in Welcome about the sort of public engagement that we'd like to support and see, um, which covers science communication, but is also much broader. 
Um, we made a really important shift, which was saying that we weren't just here to fund um, public engagement as an activity, but what we were really essentially funding were outcomes. What was the difference that you could make through the public engagement? What was the change that you could make? And that could be um, in the researcher, in their, their kind of um, mindset or their skills. It could be in the research itself. Perhaps it helps to set new priorities or it could be in the public. And to get to that shift, we, we thought that there were three outcomes in particular that we'd really like to see. One um, is about uh, the science community. So we wanted to see much more people-centered research. And then the other two really are connected to the public. We know that trust in the public is is hugely important. So um, how can we ensure that the public can trust and value research? And then the other really is about empowering the public to play a role in research. So not just to be a a receiver of knowledge or at the other end of a piece of research, but really thinking about what's the role for the public. So I really wanted to go and find 25 great examples that would sort of bring those ideas to life and, and help um, researchers, whether um, long in the tooth or starting out, um, picture the sorts of outcomes and the sorts of roles that, that the public could play in their research. You recently closed the application window and made some selections. Can you give me some examples of submissions that you've received so that the researchers among my listeners can get a better idea of scope? Because I'm sure that other organizations, not just Welcome, might be interested in supporting similar trajectories. Yeah, we've got a real mixture of projects and, and perhaps it helps to talk a little bit about the different types of roles that we see that the public can play in research. Um, we think that the public can help to inform research and that could be um, from arm's length um, through understanding the public's needs through traditional research approaches. It could be that um, they're helping to co-produce the research um, or, or through other ways. So we've got projects where they've really tapped into the public's potential and, and latent capacity to inform research. We've got projects where they were great examples at, at sort of building trust in communities. Um, and then we have uh, projects that really help the public. We've got, we've got one project from Austria by um, a research organization called LBG. And they, they wanted to look at the field of um, mental health and children's mental health, and they crowdsourced research questions from the public. They wanted to know what, what would the public set um, as a research question. Uh, they brought together um, scientists together with publics on voting panels, and they settled on a question of how do we protect a child's mental health where we have two parents or one parent who also has poor mental health. Um, and what was really nice about that is that they kept the that research question in its sort of whole form that any member of the public would recognise. And they actually gathered researchers from lots of different fields around that question. They ran ideas labs to have a look at what different types of research did they now need to produce. How would they connect it up with clinicians and then how would they put it into practice? So we really liked this project uh, because it, it looked at how you could involve the public in research right from the start, right the way through to the end. Um, and it's really reaping uh, rewards to researchers um, who get to work in a much more multidisciplinary way. The success rate is higher, um, so they all had to um, submit applications for funding and they've actually had much higher success rates. So it's also been great for researchers too. 
Another project was one called Nightclub, and this was a, a collaboration between um, employers of shift workers here in the UK, sleep researchers at Oxford University, and then a creative agency. Um, and the creative agency, I, I guess a bit like science communication, they really had the skills at sort of understanding both the employers and, and the researchers and acting as that kind of facilitative bridge. And they bought um, an old shipping container. They did it out like a nightclub and they really brought sleep research to life for employers and employees who are on shift work to help them understand their sleep cycles, how they might sleep better. Because we know that um, shift workers tend to suffer from poorer outcomes than, than people who don't do shift work and, and that sleep is, is particularly important for this group. And at the end of that, what we really liked is it, it, it led to outcomes for the shift workers who um, ad adopted new practices based on the, the research. The employers themselves actually started to look differently at their shift patterns and the way in which they manage uh, shift workers. So that for us was a really great example of sort of outcomes driven public engagement. Rafaela Keisler is a 25 Trailblazers finalist, a researcher at the LBG an Austrian research institute in Vienna. She ran the project that crowdsourced research questions on mental health in children, the one that Carla referred to. I was curious to know how Rafaela came across this competition. Yeah, it was an exciting thing. A colleague of mine forwarded me the link, so I think you saw it on the website, and we thought it would be a fantastic opportunity to show what we are doing in the field of mental health and how we engage the public and the patients um, when we're working with children that have a parent with a mental illness. So, yeah, I guess I was engaged by the website. So the entire premise was based on working with the community to crowdsource a research question. How did you manage to do this, practically speaking? So we started the whole thing with a crowdsourcing with, with, our, with the Austrian community. So the idea was to ask the community what kind of research questions or topics should we research on in the field of mental health. So the topic was very broad about mental health. And we wanted the, the public to engage in this process because they know what's, you know, what's relevant for them. And we should, you know, have also societal-driven research and missions. So we asked them um, via like an online platform, which was open for some months. And we got lots of responses from healthcare practitioners, from patients, from family members um, answering these questions. And they came up with, with lots of interesting topics and ideas and figured out that the, there was an overarching topic of children uh, whose parents have a mental illness what was really coming up in every topic. So if you talk about, so there were many clusters of monitoring health or early interventions or medications any or different or more effective treatment for mental illness. But the topic of children that have a parent with mental illness, this can really cross uh, in every cluster. And we thought this would be really good uh, to focus on. In the future, Rafael. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ella and her colleagues will have to explore how to showcase the results of this community-driven effort. She says she thinks that a video or an animation that highlights the complex challenges that these children face is a good place to start. You're listening to Working Scientist. 
Up next, I talk to Gail Cardew, the Director of Science and Education at the Royal Institution of Great Britain, dedicated to sponsoring programs centered around science education and research. And finally, Joshua Chutan, a postdoctoral fellow and lecturer in physiology and neuroscience at the Australian National University. I talked to him about a very interesting experiment he embarked on to promote his research about vision. The Royal Institution is currently leading an effort to promote science and tech in the UK and open new venues for researchers to engage with each other and the public with an emphasis on events targeting school-age children. It offers a range of resources, including STEM grants, short courses, and masterclasses. One of the first things that Gail of the Royal Institution told me about the current science communication ecosystem and how scientists and researchers file in and out of it is how broad it has become, at least compared to 10 or 20 years ago. I think the whole ecosystem is much bigger, which means obviously there are many, many more opportunities, but also I think that it's a far more fluid field. And so you can stay in science research and then do some science communication if you like, or you can leave science research behind Or you could communicate science in different ways. You can go into policymaking and, and, and communicate to policymakers, or you can go into corporate comms for you know, the higher education sector or for SMEs. Tell me about your work at the Royal Institution. What are some of the lessons that can be gleaned from your experience setting up public engagement programs? I don't know if there is just one single way of doing this, but if you're designing a program, our basic thinking at the beginning was is there a need for this? Will anyone care about this? You know, if we set it up, will people come? Will it be of need? Will they benefit from it? So I think if you can actually answer that as a yes, then you're on a good start, really. Although I've got to say that sometimes it's good to give it a go. And sometimes you don't get it right completely. So I do remember one program that we started up at the Royal Institution. There was a, an idea that we had for making videos for parents with preschool children or um, primary school children. So these are children aged, say, five to age nine or 10. We were going to do videos for those parents to show them how easy it is to do science activities with their children. So these are parents who may do arts and crafts at home, but they wouldn't necessarily do science experiments. We really kind of wanted to connect with parents who are not already connected with science in any way. And we launched these videos and we did them in a very, you know, diverse way. They did pretty well. People, parents were sharing their activities online with us on Twitter. And then when we did the evaluation, what we realized was that, that we were serving parents who already would do science activities. So although they were really good videos, we were not getting to the intended audience. We were not getting to those parents who, who just would not sit down and do science activities. And then in that evaluation, we had groups of parents who we had identified from different sources. And they were saying, This is, these are great. These are great videos. But we would never sit down and type into Google, do science experiments with my kids. It just wouldn't cross our minds. So there's the challenge, actually, I think, really, particularly online, is if you're doing something in a science communication way, it's not just the communication of the science. You also have to think about where is the audience? Who is the audience? How will they access this material? How will you get to that audience? And, and are you meeting their needs of something that they would really like to have? That's excellent advice. I was wondering if you could, you know, single out a program or two that you're proud of. Does anything come to mind? Yeah, there, there is actually. There's one activity that we did with a group of teenagers. And we were trying to, I guess, show 
teenagers, how the whole full landscape of science research. So we were trying to give them an indication of what the government spends its money on, how those decisions are made, how some areas of science are prioritized over other areas. Like if they were the science ministers and the people in charge, kind of what would they spend their money on? How would they decide? So we wanted to really open up, if you like, the infrastructure around science. And the way we did this was to invite local representatives from local schools to come to the Royal Institution. And we had a few short talks in the morning given by people who know quite a lot about science policy. And then we just opened the floor to the students and we had all sorts of workshops around the building of people discussing issues and discussing kind of their, their ways of spending or their, what they would prioritise. And then we brought everybody back and they presented their ideas to each other. And we were lucky enough to then take a group of those students afterwards to the science minister at the time to present the ideas back to the science minister. So it was just a really nice way of, of really opening out the students' eyes to something that they would just really not have learnt at school. It wasn't about the facts of science. You get, you know, it was just about the whole science policy landscape, which was entirely novel for them. But you could see that it actually, even though it was novel, there was plenty for them to, to discuss and, and roll up their sleeves and really engage with as, as a topic. So they weren't just receiving information and writing it down in their, in their exercise books. They were fully engaged with the issues and the discussions of the day. I'm hoping that these conversations give our listeners a sense of what works and what doesn't work when it comes to presenting their work, either as part of university outreach or when they apply for programs, fellowships or grants centered around SciComm. I've personally talked to scientists who felt that the research is important, but that somehow the public or the media fail to take it seriously enough. As someone who isn't only an expert in communication, but also one who works with scientists a lot, what advice can you give some of our listeners? Some do's and don'ts, if you will, about how to showcase their work or pitch it to a general audience, whether that audience is a panel that could provide them with a funding opportunity, a group of journalists in a press conference, or the public during a SciComm activity. So one thing that I've, <laughs> one mistake that I see sometimes is the mistake of um, starting off with your easy part of your work, and then gradually as the minutes go on, get more and more and more difficult. Because you lose your audience at like five minutes in, you've got 10% gone. 10 minutes in, you've got another 10% gone. And by, you know, three quarters of the way in, you've got about three people listening because they've completely lost the thread and there's no way back into the conversation. Gail, say that I'm a scientist or a science communicator who has an idea for a public engagement program and I want to collaborate with you. Where do I start and how do I get your attention? I think the first thing to say is that in my experience, the ecosystem and landscape of science communicators is a very collaborative one. So if you have an idea for something and you want to shoot it by a few people to get some feedback, everyone is very, very open to giving you some hints, some suggestions about how to improve it, how to maybe make it bigger or make it more tailored or make it more you know, interesting or, or whatever. So I do think that the community that we're in is a very supportive, collaborative and open community and very sharing of its own ideas. In terms of how you would pitch it to collaborate, I think it's a recognition of understanding who brings what to the table. Even if you're a small individual and you're looking for collaborating with a big university or a big institution, you have to recognize that each of you in that collaboration needs to benefit somehow. So being very open with 
how you would benefit, how they would benefit, how the audience would benefit. Another thing to think of is, you know, this sector is not awash with money and funds. So if it's a very large project or an idea, how is that going to be funded? How will people's time be costed into it? Because often in organizations that are professional science communication organizations, someone is paying the salary of these people. So, you know, how will that be costed in, you know, just having those conversations very openly up front and thinking through all the logistics behind it all is, is a good start. What are some of the resources the scientists or science communicators can tap into in order to get funding for their ideas? That is a difficult question. I mean, there are there are funds available from your own institution sometimes. Um, so you can look for funding within higher education establishments to see if there's any funding for you to do work within local schools or or communities and so you know working within your own institution already and 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 really finding who within your institution is championing this first i mean i think that's the first step that's where i would go first i think just to work out within your own organization who is there that's doing this already that i can collaborate with um who might be able to point me in the direction of some funds i think you also if you have an idea you have to start a read up look on you know google who who else is in the field doing this already who's funding this where do they get their money from so do some research before you start reaching out and then i think it's a question of just having meetings with people and and being upfront with that. You know, funding is tight in this sector, I've got to say. So there are a number of small trusts and foundations who will fund public engagement. There are a number of companies that will that will fund it. But again, re- remember what I said about each partner needing to benefit something from it. So even if you're receiving money from someone, they also need to benefit somehow. So, you know, you have to think about why would they fund my project over other people's projects. PhDs typically take three to five years to complete, thousands of words to explain, hours to present. Now imagine being asked to wrap it all up in three single minutes, one single slide in front of a general audience as part of a competition that basically boils down to who does it best. That's exactly what scientist Joshua Chu Tan did as part of an annual competition that started in Australia and ended up being held in 200 universities worldwide. Welcome to 3-Minute Thesis. Just the whole process of trying to distill down such complex topics, such complex research into three minutes whilst towing that fine line between being condescending, which is obviously what we don't want to do because there's, you know, people that are in the audience are educated. If you're not in science, it doesn't mean you're not educated. Um, So there's a lot of people there that want to know more about what we do. And it's trying to find that fine line between not being condescending about it, but still deciphering it in a way that, that the general public and people outside of our field can understand. And I think that was a, a, a really fun way and fun event to, to try my hand at it. And I've kind of been hooked ever since to, in this kind of science communication aspect of things. Besides finding that fine line between explaining the science without dumbing it down, what other challenges did you face? When I was writing this, instead of concentrating on the minute details, it really was a flipping in my mind um, of what has traditionally been done in science. And you really have to just start thinking of, of the bigger picture and integrating that within your talk because you have three minutes. So the hardest thing is 
to try to decipher down what detail is needed and what isn't. And I think a lot of times we as scientists and we as researchers struggle with that and tend to condense a lot of data. If we have a short talk, and you see this in conferences all the time, if you have a short talk, 12 to 15 minutes, instead of trying to pick and choose the main bits of data to show, people tend to just data dump everything onto slides and you have everything there, but they just talk a lot more quick. That can't be done in, in the three-minute thesis. So I think the toughest challenge for a lot of people, including myself, was to pick out, okay, what kind of detail is needed here? I knew from the start that I wanted to, to talk about the bigger picture and to really frame it in the disease context, frame it in what it is overarchingly we are trying to do here and then go into a little bit more of the research, but not so much detail that people immediately get bogged down by it. Joshua, I got to admit, it's definitely an atypical way of presenting a PhD. But you didn't stop there. You went on and took part in an even stranger activity to promote your work. We have this annual fun run here in in Canberra, uh, where you can do a five kilometer run or a 10 kilometer run. And to kind of raise awareness for what it is we do, I decided to to run the 10-kilometer run completely blindfolded. Let me just take a moment to explain to listeners exactly what you do. So Joshua is a postdoctoral fellow whose research is focused on age-related macular degeneration, which is a common disease that causes damage to the macula, the central area of the retina, and the part that makes us see fine details clearly. That spot is the key to our 2020 and most of our color vision. Now, Joshua is part of a group that is looking at gene therapy to save eyesight and to stop the progression of the disease. Okay, back to the run. You were not completely alone, correct? Um, I had a guide with me, so I wasn't just running blindfolded amongst, amongst thousands of people, but I did have a guide. But yeah, that, that was the idea in order to raise awareness because it's tough to really understand I guess the disease context, unless you, you know someone with it, unless you've experienced it yourself, that was a way for me and for everyone else that participated in it to be able to, again, see that, see that bigger picture. You know, you, you lose sight of it a lot of the times when you're in the, in the lab just doing monotonous work. You can lose sight of why we're doing things. So to do something like that where I had to spend, and I think it was probably around an hour of running, completely blindfolded to just get a, a small glimpse of what it is we're trying to fight with our research and what the the people that we're trying to help have to go through, not just for an hour on a, any given day, but on a daily basis, was something that I wanted to experience for myself so that I could have that slightly stronger understanding of what it is and a motivational push for me to continue to, to do the work that we do. So, so I did that blind run. We tried to fundraise for the lab as well. Um, so any money that was fundraised went straight back into the lab, into our research. And again, you know, a solid amount of traction. And, and it was in, an incredibly enlightening experience. I hope you enjoyed, as I did, this chat about the flurry of creative ways in which scientists have used funds or leaned on big charities to illuminate the public about their work, get some perspective into their own research under a different light, or in Joshua's case, complete darkness, design the work differently, or use outreach to raise money for their labs. If you're not already subscribed to Working Scientists, you can do so via Acast, Apple, or Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. In the final episode of the series next week, we talk about breaking into science publishing. Whether your endgame is a magazine article or a book, I talk to experts in the field about where to begin and how to land a successful pitch. 
Until then, I'm Pakina Maimer. Thank you for listening. 